It's good to be with you all again. It's been a couple weeks. Um, <coughs> Danielle and I are, are doing well after our, our bout with COVID. Uh, for those of you who uh, sent texts and called, uh, we appreciate it. Those of you who sent food, um, I'm sure it tasted great. I couldn't tell because I couldn't taste anything and still still can't really taste, uh, but that's okay. But I'm, I'm glad to be with you again. And, uh, you know, God, God has a sense of humor. Um, because today I'm going to talk to you about something that I didn't really experience a whole lot of this week. And about halfway through the week, I found myself saying, Lord, how can I preach about something that I haven't really been experiencing? And uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 uh, had really never seems more relevant, where it says, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. And I said, okay, if that's, if that's good enough for you, then that's good enough for me. And so now here I am to talk to you about peace. So we're, we're in Advent season. Uh, it's a time of preparation and anticipation. And uh, as we know, our word is peace this week. Now typically when we think of peace, we think of you know, calmness and tranquility and that kind of thing, which is a definitely a, a meaning of the word. Uh, but the Hebrew word translated peace is actually a multifaceted word, and I'm sure you've heard of it. It's shalom, shalom. And its most basic meaning is that of completeness or wholeness. And as in Joshua 8.31, where it's used to refer to a whole stone without any cracks or cuts in it, or a shalom stone, as it's, as it's called. And so therefore, peace is about taking that is what is fragmented, divided and broken, and making it whole again. And when you think about our world today and your life in 2020, uh, peace is probably the last word that comes to mind, right? Uh, you know, how can we talk about peace when life seems to just be so chaotic? Pandemics, protests, riots, and worst of all, elections, right? Of all the things, the elections. Uh, but, but on an even more personal level, um, what about the lack of peace in our own hearts? You know, our rhythms have been thrown off course and uh, no one knows when or if mass wearing and social distancing and stay-at-home orders will ever, ever stop. And I think they might even remove the word normal from the dictionary because it might just fall out of use uh, after, after this year. So where does this peace that we're talking about come from? And, and is it even possible? Is it even possible? So Colossians 1, 19 through 20, provides a great summary of God's work in establishing shalom. And as he concludes a section about the deity and preeminence of Christ, Paul then states what Christ accomplished through the cross. And here's what he says. For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. In reference to this passage, uh, Timothy Keller says this, Shalom experienced is multidimensional, complete well-being, physical, psychological, social, and spiritual. And it flows from all of one's relationships being put right, with God, within oneself, and with others. So, although it might not seem possible, Jesus can transform all of our relationships, and he does that, 
by establishing peace in our three primary relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship within ourselves, and our relationship with others. So first, he can establish relationship, or peace in our relationship with God. Now, this is, this is primary, right? Of all of our relationships, this is the one that needs tended to first, because if neglect happens in this relationship with God, it leads to destruction elsewhere. And in Romans 5, after discussing the fact that Abraham was justified by faith and not by works, Paul states very clearly how we can have peace with God. Verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says we are justified by faith in Christ. Now, justification is a central doctrine to the Christian faith. And I always tell my middle school and high school students, don't be afraid of big words like justification because really all it is is just big concepts or themes or ideas condensed down into a single word just so we can talk about all that stuff in one word. So here is a little definition of what justification is. It's a legal term that means someone who once had a debt of guilt is now declared innocent because the debt has been paid or canceled. Justification is a legal term that means someone who, had, who once had a debt of guilt is now declared innocent because the debt has been paid or canceled. So let's compare this to a presidential pardon. The President of the United States has the authority to issue a pardon to someone who's committed a federal crime. And these are people who've been convicted as guilty and are re- receiving justice for the wrong that they have done. Now typically, they must take responsibility for the crime and show remorse in order to receive uh, a pardon. And when a president pardons someone for a federal offense, they're declaring the person innocent as if they never committed the crime, as if they'd never done it. And despite the fact that they are actually still serving time on their sentence. However, the person being pardoned can actually deny the pardon. An example of this can be seen in a man named George Wilson. So in the early 1800s, he robbed a couple mail trains. And actually at one point, he put a mail carrier uh, at risk of dying. So he was imprisoned, and he was sentenced to be executed. Now Andrew Jackson was the president at the time, and Wilson had some friends who convinced Jackson to pardon him. So here's what happened. He's, con- he's convicted, Jackson pardons him, but then Wilson denies the pardon. He doesn't accept it. And eventually, he was hanged. So in the same way, God has actually offered a pardon to all who admit they're guilty and show godly sorrow repentance for their actions, for their crimes against him. The debt that each of us has incurred because of the evil we've done, doesn't, it doesn't just magically disappear. No, it's actually paid for. It was paid for by Jesus on the cross. And that, that's where he comes in. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He took on our sin and we took on his righteousness. We've been justified. And so, legally and literally in the sight of God, we are innocent innocent. So God isn't saying, well, I know Jesus died for your sin and technically and paid for it, but you're still guilty. No, we are, we are innocent in his sight. 
And this isn't just some theoretical idea, but is a present reality for those who are in Christ. And at the moment you exercised faith in Christ for your salvation, you were justified, born again, and sealed with the Holy Spirit. Case closed, you're innocent forever. Forever. Now this doesn't mean we no longer ask for forgiveness in our lives because, you know, we, we may still fall into sin. We need to repent because when we sin, it causes fractures in our relationship with God. The shalom has been broken and our relationship needs to be made whole again. Peace needs to be continually made. Shalom needs to be restored. And when peace is restored between two parties, it means they are no longer enemies. Therefore, When we are justified by faith in Christ, we are no longer enemies with God. In Romans 5.10, Paul says that we were his enemies. And we must remember, God didn't make himself our enemy, but we made ourselves enemies of God, and we made him our number one enemy. We were the one that chose to turn our back on him. F.F. Bruce says it this way, The hostility... An estrangement which requires to be removed lies in man, not God. It is he who takes the initiative and goodwill by providing the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So it's not God that was hostile towards us, but us towards him. We broke the peace with him. We committed treason. We turned our back on him. And since we are the hostile party, God is the one who must take the initiative in making peace between us and him so that we can once again be allies. And actually, a couple verses uh, before our passage in Colossians 1, Paul says that the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you were in the enemy camp, but God wouldn't stand for it. He came in, he released you, and brought you back into his kingdom. If you aren't following Jesus you're still in the enemy camp. So the question is, why stay? You're, you're in chains no matter what you do or no matter how free you think you are to do whatever you want. God has already made a way for you to change your loyalties. And he desires peace between you and him. He desires shalom. And Jesus is the opportunity to be reconciled to God and have shalom, wholeness, completeness brought to your relationship with him. And when we're finally able to admit our guilt and show that we are remorseful and repentant for what we have done, then we can experience peace with God. Now, the beautiful thing about experiencing peace with God is that we can begin to experience that peace within our own souls as we relate to ourselves because Jesus can establish peace in our relationship with ourselves. And this is most clearly stated in Philippians 4, 7, which says, the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, if I'm honest, maybe you can relate. Uh, There are many days where this experience that the Apostle Paul talked about just there uh, seems very foreign to me. The peace of Christ in our hearts and our minds. And since social distancing and and stay-at-home orders have been in place, there's been a major decline in mental and emotional health uh, around the world and in the United States. 
anxiety rates have skyrocketed. Those who struggle with depression have found themselves in deeper pits of despair, leading to suicidal ideations. And addictions used to numb one's internal pain have worsened. So internal peace in our hearts and minds seems to be all but extinct in the times that we find ourselves. Despite these present circumstances and realities, we can experience this peace that surpasses all understandings in our emotions and in our thoughts, no matter how hopeless it may seem right now. And in fact, Jesus can bring wholeness to those emotions that we just can't seem to get a grasp on. For the most part, this experience is a byproduct of knowing that we have peace with God. So I I said it earlier, but peace with God is, is primary. It's foundational being at peace with ourselves. When we know we have peace with God, we, pe- we can begin to be free to be at peace with ourselves and experience that peace on a very real and personal level in the depth of our soul. And this is why Paul says the peace of God will guard your hearts. And the New Testament scholar, Daniel Wallace, says the thought he's trying to communicate is the peace produced by God. So as the peace we experience in our relationship takes deeper root in our souls, it begins to produce peace in our hearts in the way we experience our emotions. And now, this isn't to say that once you become a Christian, you're in a constant state of inner shalom, right? We're complex beings, and there can be numerous causes for the lack of peace that we experience. Maybe, uh, you know, for one example, one thing that causes extreme amounts of anxiety and stress is trauma. So those of us among us who have been in active combat zones have experienced trauma. Broken relationships can cause severe trauma as well. Abuse, whether emotional, physical, sexual, verbal, cause deep amounts of trauma in one's life and can produce anxiety and depression. And hear me when I say this. You can memorize Philippians 4, 4 through 7 in English, Greek, Latin, and Swahili, but if you have undealt with trauma in your life, you will not experience consistent peace within your heart and in your soul, in your emotions and your thoughts. Because we're complex beings. So pay attention to what's going on in your soul. Talk to a friend. Visit a counselor. Research or sorry, sometimes our neurochemistry can be out of balance and we need to take some medication. I have Christian friends who struggle deeply with depression and when they began to take medication, it helped to restore the neurochemicals in their brain that were out of whack. So we can't always chalk it up to a lack of faith or we don't read or pray enough because we are complex beings. And Jesus works in many different ways ways. So let's remember that as we minister to ourselves and minister to others. However, something we can do to help experience this shalom within ourselves is to be transformed in the way we think. And as always, science is catching up to what the Word of God said thousands of years ago, but research has shown that the things we think affect how we feel and how we behave. So when we're stuck in a constant state of negative thoughts, we get stuck in negative emotions and behave accordingly. And this is why in verse 8 
of Philippians 4, Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And notice what Paul lists first. Whatever is true. Truth. We live in a culture in time and history when people think there isn't any truth or that we can't even know the truth if it, ex- if it exists. You'll hear statements such as, there's no such thing as truth. The problem with that statement is it's a truth claim. So it's self-defeating. And if a, if a claim is self-defeating, then it can't be true. And it's, it's no wonder that Western society is being torn apart at the seams because we don't even have a concept of what's true anymore. And it, our, our worldview has been built on a faulty foundation of self-defeating ideas. And when we have no truth to hold to, then we just follow whatever our emotions and our feelings are telling us to do, and peace cannot be had. And this is why our thinking needs to be transformed by the truth. Truth has really transformed my life significantly, significantly over the past year and a half. I've spent a lot of time studying Christian apologetics, which is how to defend the Christian faith. I've studied things such as arguments for the existence of God, the reliability of the Old and New Testaments. Is the resurrection of Jesus a historical fact? I've done the research, and I've concluded that I can, I can believe beyond a reasonable doubt that these things are true, that they are true. And intellectually, I'm convinced. But I'm, I'm going to make a bold statement. Are you ready for it? I could never walk away from Christ. And it's not because being a Christian makes me feel good all the time. I told you at the beginning, the last thing I experienced this week was the peace that surpassed all understanding. But it's because my intellectual understanding of the truth of Christianity has become an anchor of peace in my soul when my emotions, my feelings, and life seem to contradict what's true. It's become an anchor for me. And I believe that this, this is where so many people go wrong when they walk away from the Christian faith. I would say most don't walk away for intellectual reasons, but rather emotional reasons. They've experienced deep pain, hurt, or loss, which are all very real things. Internally, their emotions and their feelings don't line up with their beliefs, and emotions and feelings are very powerful, are they not? So they must be true. Not always the case. And these people, they haven't done the work ahead of time to figure out if Jesus actually is who he said he is. So when hardship comes, they throw in the towel. And if that's you or might be you one day, I'm just going to be blunt. That's on you. There's plenty of evidence out there. There's books, there's articles, there's podcasts, there's videos, there's classes that you can do to look into this stuff and find out the truth of Christianity, which would bring peace to your soul whenever everything else seems to be out of whack. You need to prepare your mind with the truth so that when your emotions are at peace, you can still experience the peace of Jesus because you know what's true. You know what's true. And as we begin to experience this peace in our emotions and our thoughts on a deeper level, 
Jesus can establish peace in our relationships with others. In Ephesians 2, 14 through 18, when talking about the work that Christ has done for both Jews and Gentiles, or non-Jews, Paul says this in reference to Christ. For he himself, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And this is one of the most explicit passages in the New Testament about what Christ accomplished for our interpersonal relationships. He destroys that which divides us, and reconciliation with others is now possible. In this context, Paul is speaking specifically about ethnic relationships between Jews and Gentiles. So when he says the dividing wall of hostility is broken, he may have been referring to the railing that was in the temple courts where the outer court was only where the Gentiles go in. They couldn't go past this railing, and the Jews could go into the inner courts. But in Jesus, that railing, that wall has been broken, and now all can be at peace, and now all have equal access to God. And because they have equal access to God, peace can then be made between these different ethnic groups. Now, we, we tend to form ourselves into different groups all the times, whether it's social class, sex, sexual orientation, political affiliations, ethnicity, or whatever other identities we can think of. But notice I didn't say race. And that's because there's only one race, the human race. And when we start to say there's a black race, there's a Hispanic race, there's an Asian race, there's a white race, we're only causing further divisions amongst ourselves. Why? Listen to this. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines race like this. Any one of the groups that humans are often divided into based on physical traits regarded as common among people of shared ancestry. It only further divides us. And when something is divided, it literally can't be whole. So in math, if you divide one by two, you get two halves. You don't have a whole anymore. And then you further divide it, and it's further fragmented. So you have the parts of the whole, but you don't have a whole in itself. You no longer have shalom. So that's why I use the word ethnicism instead of racism, because obviously there's prejudice between different ethnic groups. But the reality is we need, there is more in common between all of us than there is different. As image bearers of God, we are all have inherent value and worth. We are all of the same race, and that's where we need to start instead of starting with our differences. We see that a lot today. Now remember our passage in Colossians that talks about God reconciling all things to himself and making peace through Christ's blood. Later in that same letter, Paul says this, Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. In Galatians 3.28, he says something similar. There is neither Jew or Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, 
We must be careful not to read our cultural context in this passage. When he says there is no male or female, he's not saying biological sex and gender don't exist. That would contradict other, other parts of Scripture. He's saying that before Christ, regardless of ethnicity, nationality, class, or gender, all are one. Christ tears down the dividing walls of hostility in order to bring unity, peace, wholeness to our relationships. And when these dividing walls are torn down, we can be reconciled to one another. In his book, Peace Child, Don Richardson records the story of how God brought reconciliation between neighboring villages. While serving as missionaries on the island of Papua, formerly known as Irianjaya, uh, they worked among the cannibalistic Sawi tribe. Now, something interesting about their culture was that they honored treachery as an ideal or value. They would befriend people of other villages, act hospitably towards them, and then eventually they would betray the guests by attacking them, killing them, and eating them. And so, when Mr. Richardson told the story of how Judas betrayed Jesus, guess who was the hero of the story? Judas. They celebrated Judas because he lived out their highest ideal of treachery. And this puzzled Richardson. How could you communicate the gospel to a culture that has been so distorted to believe that treachery is an ideal and honorable? Eventually, God provided the answer. Several neighboring villages were constantly at war with one another and would fight over who got closest to the Richardsons. So eventually they said, we're going to have to leave if you guys can't make peace. But they wanted to keep the Richardsons around because they knew the value of having these Westerners. So, here's what happened. One of the men from the villages took his six-month-old son and ran to the other village. And in this culture, this was called a peace child. And so what happened is he brought his son as a peace offering. And the village that he went to, they presented a child as well to be exchanged as an offering of peace. The thing is, they didn't sacrifice, they didn't kill and eat these children. But instead, these different villages took in this peace child and raised them as their own. And as long as the peace child was alive, there would be peace between these two villages. And Richardson saw it. Jesus is the ultimate peace child. Amen. He is the one who brings peace between these different groups, these divided walls of hostility. He breaks them down. And guess what? He's still alive, so there can be peace eternally between our relationships with one another and those around us. Incredible. This was known as a redemptive analogy. A father would give his son to the enemy to restore peace and bring reconciliation. So they shared with the Sawi that in the same way they offered a child to make reconciliation and peace with one another, so God offered his son Jesus. And to this day, the majority of the Sawi tribe follows Jesus. And thus, Jesus can establish peace 
in our relationships with others. So now we've seen that Jesus transforms all of our relationships. And he does this by, first of all, establishing peace in our relationship with God. And then he can establish peace in our relationship with ourselves and others. And it's all rooted in him, as Isaiah says, the Prince of Peace. So as we reflect on these different relationships, I urge you to make peace where it's lacking, whether with God, yourselves, or others. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We are to make peace where it is absent. We must seek to make whole that which was broken, so that shalom might characterize every area of our lives. And one of the ways this shalom has manifest our lives is through the Lord's Supper. Timothy Keller writes this, One of the offerings under the Mosaic Covenant was the shalomim offering, the peace or fellowship offering. The only one of the Levitical sacrifices in which the offerer receives back some of the meal to eat. Sin disrupts shalom when anything heals the rupture and closes the gap between us and God. There should be a celebration, a joyful meal in God's presence. One of the most intimate gestures we can make to someone is to invite them to our own table for a meal. Friends, communion is God's invitation to his table. When we participate in this ordinance, we are declaring the peace that we have with God and the peace that we have with others because we are all equal here at his table. We are all made whole. And what better way to celebrate the peace that Jesus brings to all of our relationships than a joyful meal in his presence. Let's pray.